1: Let's get started. Hey, everyone. I'm trying something new based on your feedback. Stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from the interview. These insights are also in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Now on to my guest for today, Mark Hirschberg, experienced CTO, MIT lecturer, and author of the book, The Career Toolkit. Mark graduated with an engineering degree from MIT and started working in startups. A mentor suggested he also do consulting work for corporations, and he soon realized he lacked some critical skills. He has made it his mission to teach these skills, which include networking, management, and leadership, as both a teacher and an author. His book, The Career Toolkit, offers some insights into what many colleges fail to teach. One of the biggest challenges for an entrepreneur, as well as anyone looking to advance their career, is learning the quote-unquote soft skills of networking, management, and leadership that enable them to move from a worker to a manager and then to a leader. Mark describes that managers do as supporting others, of anticipating barriers and getting them out of the way, of fostering collaboration and negotiations, right? Managers get stuff out of the way, right? Moving from a contributor, one that actually does the work at you know, figuring out how to make a product or a service or a solution or whatever, to a manager means you need to switch your mindset from doing the work to finding solutions and ensuring a good flow of communication. And actually the most important thing is helping people work together and getting out of the way, right? While learning these skills requires a shift in mindset. Mark thinks everyone can learn them. Now, let's get better together. Mark Hirschberg, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to speak with you as well. Um, We met through matchmaker.fm, and then we realized that we had a bunch of LinkedIn connections together, which was really cool. I always love it. When it kind of comes full circle, you know, it's like, gosh, I guess I know really cool people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so you've been doing a lot uh, lately and uh, like have a really pretty awesome entrepreneurial career. We were talking a little bit ahead of time, you know, you've been at a three person company up to a 300,000 person company. So like all points in between. And I think. This is going to be just a really interesting conversation of how that kind of evolves as an entrepreneur, and you know all that sort of stuff. Um, we'll we'll get to all that in a second. But what I'd really love uh, for you to tell everyone is how you got to do uh, what you're doing today.
2: I have a really interesting career. I came out of MIT back in the '90s during the dot com era, and I knew I didn't want to do big corporate jobs, so I fell into startups as kind of the last resort but it turned out to be the right place for me because I love them. And so I began my career doing traditional startups, small number of people kind of building something, trying to change the world. Along the way, my mentor suggested you should do some consulting. This is going to help you expand your skill set. So I did some consulting. I've helped a couple of Fortune 500s who wanted to play startup. I also discovered along the way that there are all these skills we need that no one's ever taught us, leadership, communication, negotiation, networking. I had to develop these skills myself because they weren't taught to me in high school or college. And once I began to understand them, when I interviewed, I tried to look for it in other people and found most people didn't have these skills. So if I couldn't buy it, I had to build it. I had to train up folks. And as I was doing that, MIT had gotten similar feedback companies were saying to MIT, look, you produce very smart people, but they don't have these skills. And similar feedback has been given to universities across America that we're just not developing these skills. So MIT wanted to put together a program. I wound up hearing about this and said, you know, I've been developing some training programs myself. Can I be of help? They said, sure. So I said, here you go. Here's what I'm working on. They said, why don't you help us teach this program? And so in addition to building startups, I've had a side career teaching at MIT for the past 20 years, which now led into my book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You.
1: Yeah. Wow. In the 90s. So you were back in the day when I was coming up, you know, um, I got out. Yeah. for Literally, I think my first gig out of college was 95 at a semiconductor company. And then the dot com stuff was just I mean, at a semiconductor company, I know it seems like how could the dot-com like drive semiconductors, but all those switches that were switching all that internet traffic, they needed chips. And the company I worked for, Cypress Semiconductor, supplied those chips. And I remember the day the bubble burst. And this is no joke. We were at a company meeting and they put up the sales forecast and it was negative. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, have you ever seen a negative? I mean- we're going to get negative revenue because everyone, like Cisco was our big client, you know, Junior, all these networking companies were like gone, you know, home networks, all these sort of things. So really cool that you've kind of seen this whole lot, like life cycle of a, a bunch of different booms and busts, you know, as not only a an operator of a startup, but also as a teacher. And I find it really fascinating because I think through these, all of these ups and downs, we really start to see the importance of having skills that are not normally taught in school. So why don't you tell us a little bit about some of these skills that, that you teach at MIT and that are, that's in your book, the, the Career Toolkit?
2: Yeah, let me break down how the book works. And again, these are not just skills that I arbitrarily came up with. This is what corporations, big and small, have said they want to see. So the first section is on career planning. It's how to actually create a career plan. And whether you're trying to develop that plan within a large corporation, or you say, I want to start my own company, but I know there are skills I need to start, right? I knew I wanted to be a CTO, but it wasn't as simple as saying, I think I'll just be a good programmer. I had to develop these other skills. So I create a plan for what are the skills and what are the roles I need along the way to make me effective in what I want to do. So chapter one is how to create and execute on a plan. Chapter two is working effectively, managing your manager, understanding the eco-chain, the supply system in which you work, corporate politics, corporate culture, all these skills of being in the office that if you don't get it right, it can really trip you up. But if you do get it, you can be so much more effective in your role and the company as a whole can be more effective. Chapter three, interviewing. Now, there's lots of content out there on how to interview as a candidate. Oh, how do you answer, you know, what's your weakness? Here are the hard questions. We never train people how to hire.
1: Yeah, I've, that's so true. So true, man. So true.
2: I've met so many executives of big companies you've heard of. And they said, yeah, no one ever taught me how to do this. They just kind of figured it out. And, you know, I can figure things out. I can go learn how to cook by watching some YouTube videos. But that doesn't mean you want me to be the chef in your five-star restaurant, right? So learning how to interview effectively. We say people are so important to our company's success. Let's learn how to get the right people. Second section, leadership and management. And management, I break down into people management and process management. They are both important skills. And all of these skills, in fact, apply to us, whether we have a senior title, a director, or a VP title or as an individual contributor, these skills make us more effective because leadership isn't about having a title. It is about leading and influencing others. So all of us can use these skills from day one. And then the third section, communication, negotiation, networking, and ethics. All practical, tactical skills that make us much more effective in how we execute in our careers.
1: Yeah, well I'm 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 certainly glad that that you sort of laid it out in what seems like a very natural progression. Um I know uh, my frustration when I was a technical manager back in the day <laughs> um led me to write a book called Frustration Free Technical Management, which was literally the first book I ever ever wrote. And I'm like, look at what I wrote then. Now look at like the entrepreneur ethos. And I'm like, wow, like I've, I've improved. (laughs) Um, And, and, and this is super important. I think to, to realize that the, especially if you're technical, the technical prowess does not mean you'll have management prowess. And I always kind of talk to people about how to transition from that individual contributor to a manager slash leader. And so what are, you, what are the biggest sort of stumbling blocks for like technical people? I mean, I, I, I bag on technical people a lot because generally our view of the world is, all right, what, what have you done for me lately? Like how, how technical are you as opposed to do I amplify my team? So what, what are some of those things that are that, to watch out for?
2: Well, as you've alluded to, the biggest step to making our careers from individual contributor to first level manager. Because we've gone from, even as a junior contributor, we're solving some type of problem, engineering, marketing, finance, whatever. And that problem gets bigger and more complicated as we get more senior. So, okay, you can take on more responsibility. When you take that step to manager, you still, as a first level manager, might be dealing with those challenges. But now there's an entirely different set of challenges. Hiring people, managing people, budgeting, working with other departments, planning and strategy, and these are things you may not have had to deal with before. So you're starting from zero. Getting this wrong undercuts your solution, no matter how good it is at that core problem. Make it, it, making it even especially challenging for engineers, we tend to live in a black and white world. We have right and wrong answers. And sure, sometimes we can do that classic space-time trade-off or certain other trade-offs okay, but we just say, well, what are we really optimizing to, right? What's that optimization function? Great. And I'll I'll do it this way. When you're dealing with people issues, there is no one right answer. There's no one approach. There's no here, do these three steps and it works. And that makes it much more complicated. And so we haven't been trained to think that way and to engage that way. And so it's a really big transition that unfortunately, a lot of companies don't really support as people make that that first step into management?
1: Oh, companies are horrible at it. I mean, full stop. You know, everyone touts, oh, we have all this training and stuff. You know, a lot of it is just, it just doesn't work. And partly because at a big, especially at a big company and a big tech company where there is an attitude about contributors and managers, right? And I remember when I went to a uh, I got my, when I got my MBA, I had this one professor and he said, you know, your job as a manager is to sit around half the time waiting for problems to happen. And I'm all, well, what does that mean? And he's like, your job's to get stuff out of the way. Your job's not to contribute, quote unquote. And as a technical person who was used to contributing and like solving problems, writing code, debugging chips or whatever, I had the hardest time with this. And as um, an entrepreneur where maybe at the beginning, when you're a couple people in a garage, you can do the technical stuff, but as you scale, uh, you're going to run into a lot of limitations. And I see this a lot with technical founder or very like educated, you know, they got alphabet soup after their name, found a company. And then as it scales, they can't not contribute. So How do you break that mindset? Because I know this is a huge problem. I see it all the time. And I know people are a little scared of the soft skills of management.
2: You hit the nail on the head that as an individual contributor, our job is to solve the problem, whatever the nature of the problem may be. As a manager, your job is not to have the solution, it's to help the team get the solution. You need to make sure the right people, are having the right conversations at the right time. And if you focus on that, if you focus on the meta problem, on the structure, on the communication flow, then you believe if you've hired the right people and asked the right questions, your team will find the right answers. And that is your job. It's not to you yourself have the answer, but it's particularly hard, especially when you're coming up from being that individual contributor, you got where you got because you had the answer, better, faster than other people and suddenly that no longer makes you successful and could even be a limitation because you feel you have to jump in and get it and not step back as you point out to let others get it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> how many times have I made this mistake? <laughs> I can't I don't have enough fingers and toes <laughs> to to do this. It's like so so what what are some of the, you know, like again, how do you break how do you break the cycle? I mean, I it's so important. I'm so glad you brought that up because it breaking that cycle of like how it, and I think it has to do with your self-worth. I think that's for an engineer. The crux of it is I'm gauged on my technical prowess, not my management prowess. And you know, well, like at MIT, how do you, how do you teach arguably the best tech school on the planet? You know, sorry, Cal, sorry, Caltech. But <laughs> Pretty good, you know. How do you teach how do you teach those types of folks about this stuff?
2: With all the skills in the book, it is about a mindset shift. So let me pick another example and then we'll come back to this. Take negotiations. Most people think of negotiations as okay, we're gonna sit across the table and yeah, I'm gonna see how good a deal I can get. And yeah, I know you're gonna try to stop me. You're gonna try to make my deal not so good, but okay, we'll battle it out and then Hopefully, I'm stronger than you. But a good negotiator says, we are not in opposition. We are negotiation partners. We together will work on creating a deal that we both like. Now, hopefully, I'll like the deal even more than the one you initially offer because I can sweeten it and I can get more. And you're thinking the same, but we are partners in doing this. And this is a very simple mindset shift because now we go from you are the enemy What's good for you isn't for me, to okay, we're going to work together. And sometimes it'll be this this step will be better for you, this step will be better for me, but we're partners. And when you get that mindset shift, you suddenly look at negotiations in a new way. Now, there are plenty of other tactical things we can do to be stronger, but that shift is the most important step. So when we go back to management, it is that shift. It is recognizing that my job, as you were taught, is to help other people succeed in theirs. I think of my org chart as inverted because if you got rid of the entire executive team, okay, you still have all the workers producing, building, selling. If on the other hand, you got rid of everyone, just had a bunch of executives, we just sit around having meetings. We don't actually <laughs> build anything. And so it's all true. of us, true. we are supporting the people who do the actual work. And the more senior you are in management, the more people above you, you support.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. I, I like the whole inverse um, kind of org chart. Because I, I, when I've been the most successful as a manager, it has had the, the things that have been, you know, um, consistent was this, how do you be of service to the team and get really it's getting the barriers out of the way. Um, one, another one, another person told me this really valuable insight about always think three to four steps ahead of your team. What's the next thing in their way and eliminate that. Don't, don't have, don't solve the problem for them. Let them solve the problem and then just get stuff out of the way because, for, for for whatever reason, they see that the team sees that as you're generally helping them. And I, I also remember on the negotiation front, I read a book called uh, Never Split the Difference. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. Chris Foss's and, book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, as soon as when I read that and I, I shifted my mind from what you just said about we're adversarial to, so what are you worried about was literally the question. Yeah. So w- w- what's the concern here? And then immediately it's It's not about, you know, you take this, you take that. It's like, let's eliminate the concerns. And I think with management, it's let's eliminate the barriers. Let's eliminate the concerns. Let's unbound the team to do their best work. And that can be a tough thing. It can be a tough mindset to, to change.
2: One of the other key challenges is to look at the problem before you and not the problem behind you. So let's consider a very common challenge startup companies have, which is when they scale. When you go to get your first customer, we'll take enterprise sales. You wanna get your first customer, it's all hands on deck. It's everyone coming together. Okay, what does the customer want? How do we respond? You know, Pull in six engineers, because we don't know exactly how to make this work, but they'll figure it out. And so you have this, everyone huddles and makes it happen. And that's true for your second, your third customer. When you get to customer number 10, you should have, okay, we know the steps. Yeah, we'll still need help for some because we're understaffed and there's still some bumps along the way. When you get to customer 100, well, at this point, there should be some turnkey process. You can hire some kid a few years out of college and say, you sell, here's how you sell, here's how we deliver the solution. It's all set up for you, right? We need to constantly take this process and change it. And this is where companies fail from a scaling perspective because they think about what worked for customers one, two, three. That's not going to work for customers 11, 12, 13, and that won't work for 101, 102. So we have to look, what are the problems going forward, not behind us? As individuals in our career, what worked to get me here? I pulled those late nights. I worked really hard. But of course, that hero mentality that many people fall into doesn't work when you're the manager, that I can do it all on my shoulders, that doesn't create a great team. So you have to look at the problem before you, not behind you.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I laugh because
2: uh, there's been
1: so many long nights where I thought that was the case early in my career. And it just doesn't work because you're right. It doesn't scale. And I like, I like the whole, what worked for, customer one and two won't work for customer 10 or work for customer 100. I always think of it as these jumps in orders of magnitude. And then that's always the thought experiment I look at. It's like, okay, if we 10 X what we had to do, will this work? Because that's a scale problem. That's the, you know, that's the, the escalation of challenges and struggles as things, as things get more complex and things, more things happen, it's just going to stress and strain the system. I mean, I know I'm, I'm working with a client right now and they just shipped like 20 to 25 of their devices and they 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 forgot one p- critical component <laughs> of, of the process and now all of a sudden they got to call everyone and be like, "Oh, no, this is how it works." So, like those stressors are really important and those thought experiments are really quite quite interesting and and I I think that as as someone trained in engineering, once you make the shift, you actually become a lot more powerful because then, then you start applying that engineering mindset to these squishy problems that are kind of like more theoretical thought experiments is the best way I can put it. And, and, and so as you take people through, you know, this career toolkit methodology Are there, do you teach them about like thought experiments for management? Because I've found that really useful to do, I guess it would be scenarios or whatever, but I'm always like, what's my heuristic in here? Like, how how come I, I know we're not going to, it's, we're going to zig and zag all over the place, but like, what are the guardrails in my heuristics to like, look out for? Are there any of those that you could share?
2: When we teach this at MIT, we make it more concrete. This class is not one where I and the others just stand up and lecture all day long. We actually do role-playing exercises. We do case studies. We do real projects. Sometimes they're building systems. Sometimes they're engaged in certain characters. And they act out these activities. They take on a role. We give them the objective. And they try to succeed. Now, with the MIT students, we take a very engineering-centric approach. And what happens is they tend to fail at these and they fail because they do the, <laughs> we're going to throw raw IQ it. points at it, Yeah, right? We're just going to engineer it. We're going to use the formulas and they forget about the people issues, the process issues the management issues, and they fail. And it's in that moment of failure, something MIT students are definitely not used to. It's in that moment of sometimes abject failure that they go, oh, wait a second right we have to consider not just getting the formula right but how we present it to get buy-in or how we coordinate among the different teams and so that's how we do it at mit now for those who might be reading the book or those who are just trying to learn this through other sources you can replicate some of this it's less about that hands-on experiment it's great if you can do that But it is the peer learning. It's when when they fail, they get into that moment of, I suddenly realize there's something I have to pay attention to. And then it's not just having someone like me up on stage saying, well, do A, B, C. Because there is no three-step process for leadership. There's no algorithm for networking as much as we might want it as engineers.
1: (laughs) Oh, I want one. Please give me one. Please give me one.
2: (laughs) And so it's in these discussions where we say, okay, well, what went wrong or in this situation if we haven't done it? How is it you would lead? Oh, that's an interesting approach. I would have done it totally differently. But okay, I see why you'd go this way. And suddenly I expand my understanding of a complex situation because there's no one right answer. So the more perspectives I have, the deeper my understanding. So what I recommend to people is to use the techniques we use at MIT, use the techniques that top business schools have been using for decades, create peer learning groups. Mm. Now there's a download on my website. It's a free download that explains how to set this up. So you can set up these peer learning groups in your current company or organization, or if you're on your own, if you're starting your company, create some peer groups, find those other founders. I'm sure you're in some type of meetup groups or mailing lists, but meet up to discuss the topics as well. You can take my book and break it down to the different chapters or sections and say, let's talk about this. And, you know, have you had any situations where this applied or would have applied? What have I, and discuss it. If you don't want to use my book though, no worries. Take any other book you like, download how to do this. This is not just a ploy to sell books read some other great books, listen to great podcasts like this one, do a discussion on each of these podcast episodes. The important point is you get some topic, some source from a book, an article, or a podcast, but then have that discussion to really enrich your understanding, have that discussion with peers.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I have found that peer mentorship and those peer groups, especially as entrepreneurs, are so valuable because this is such a lonely job sometimes and you don't really know what you don't know. I mean, everything is different. It's, it's almost like it's alchemy at some point. I mean, it really is because yes. Okay. There's growth hacking and there's some, you know, one metric that matters and blah, 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 blah. Right. But a lot of this stuff, it's a lot of luck and a lot of being at the right place at the right time and a lot of experience and a lot of like, well, what do you think? And I'm not sure what to do. And, you know, I, I belong to this thing called Founders Network, which is a peer mentoring group for, for startups as well. And what I've found to your point is there is power in the group as, as an, as an organism to help. Um, and a lot of the challenges I've had with my startups and other things, you know, I would go to the 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 group and we talk about it. I mean that's the reason why you know an accelerator like 500 startups is so valuable because you just surround a bunch of people trying to solve similar problems and they're all really smart and a lot of them have eclectic backgrounds too I mean that's I think the other thing that's really really cool is uh, getting different perspectives from different people's backgrounds and you know, I mentioned alchemy. There's this book by Rory Sutherland called alchemy and he was a Ogilvy ad exec. And he's similar to what you're saying. It's like, there's no formula for advertising really. And well, everyone may want to have like, Oh, well that Google ads and the Facebook, blah, 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 blah. Right. In the end, it's, it's really the alchemy of human nature and creativity and fig, I'm like, if it works, it works. Sometimes there's no explanation on why it works. And as an engineer, as someone, you know, who was in the semiconductor industry where everything is like, you know, clockwork, <laughs> as you can imagine, I mean, you know, you're double E2, like we hang a lot on the formula <laughs> and breaking free of that is can be a challenge. So is it, I mean, how, how, I mean, How has the feedback been? You know, as as these as the folks at MIT go out in the world and start, you know, they start their career, they do a bunch of stuff. Obviously, some of them will be in management eventually. How has the feedback been? Have people come back to you and said, "Hey, Mark, you know what? That class you you um, you took, I thought it was a bunch of BS, but it really is pretty cool."
2: it's been even stronger than that oh cool most cool. most people they they get it now when you're teaching undergraduate students practical skills <laughs> there there's a little bit of a delay before they can even <laughs> apply them but we've had students over the summer they say wow what you taught us in this module i just boom there it was right in front of me i totally understood the situation i saw opportunity I've had students use techniques when I taught them about uh, negotiating salary. Mm. I, I remember I had one student as I was doing the module said, "I have a negotiation. I have a job offer from a startup. I have to talk to them this afternoon." Gave him some techniques. He came back and said, "Wow, you know, they doubled my stock options just like that." Wow. wow. And so we've gotten that feedback. We've also longer term. I've met students who have now been out ten plus years, and they said, "Yeah, this was really helpful." often they say, I wish I, I really understood it better or learned more, but it got them further on their path, uh, than if they hadn't done it to begin with.
1: Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, I know in engineering school, there's a lot that has to be taught. Um, but yeah, I mean, no one teaches the soft skills. I mean, even in college in general, I mean, I, and I can look, there's a finite amount of time you have and you got to do whatever. Um, how how would you how do you think you'd go about integrating more of this type of learning, more of this type of problem solving and approaching? Um, because I think I think that a lot of the new entrepreneurs coming you know coming up they think oh man I'll just build an app or whatever and then like be wildly successful and you're like yeah probably not going to happen. But h- how how do you how do you think integrating what you're doing? into like either curriculum or even into like accelerators as a great example. When I was at 500 Startups, a lot of the challenges people were running into were really not, they were growth challenges, but they were mostly growth along people and like interactions and how are we going to do this deal? It wasn't like growth hacking. It, you know, it was a lot of stuff you're talking about.
2: So those are two questions. So let's do the college one first. The university system is misaligned to the current workforce for historical reasons. So let's take the field of electrical engineering. When we went and got our degrees, there were a bunch of experienced electrical engineers, people with PhDs who said, we are the gatekeepers. And if you take this many classes, this many hours, achieve this level of knowledge, we will credential you with a degree. What that degree says is you have now, you have now achieved this level of knowledge in electrical engineering. We don't know that you're a good employee, good coworker, good leader, good communicator. We can't assess any of that. But we can say you are this level of competent in electrical engineering. And that's how the university system was set up. That was sufficient for most of the history of the university system. Even when you think back to, say, the 1950s or 60s with the hierarchical structures, your boss would say, work on this problem. You say, yes, sir. OK, here's the solution. What next? And we worked on very compartmentalized problems. In the last roughly 30 years, 30, 40 years or so, as middle management got cut out, we started to have flatter hierarchies, more dynamic teams where we interact with more different types of people, and taking on some of those meta challenges, some of those management and people challenges. And the university system did not keep up with that to teach us these skills. I think this will begin to change over the next 30, 40 years, but the university system moves slowly. So to your first question, we have to first recognize we can't teach all the skills and knowledge during the four years that most people get in education. We have to create more of an ongoing system where we have regular learning throughout the years. Doctors and lawyers, for example, have to take continuing education credits. We might even establish that every 10, 15 years, you're expected to go back for some intensive retraining because there's all these studies saying you're going to shift your career. You're going to enter a new field. You might need some deeper training. And then interwoven into this will be these other skills. So the recognition is that you don't have to teach them everything by age 22. So we will teach them a little less, but we're going to give them these other skills. To your second question, accelerators and incubators, they all figured out, okay, there are some common problems such as product market fit, teaching concepts like MVP, Jeffrey Moore's crossing the chasm, teaching them basic finance. Here's how to do a budget. No matter what company you're in, you have these problems. We're going to teach you these skills. But to your point, there's this other common set of problems, leadership, hiring, managing, scaling, and they, even though these problems are universal, the incubators and accelerators have not given the students the tools for this. And I think it's, again, because they're focused mostly on just getting you out the door over six, eight weeks and saying, like, okay, you got your, your A-round funding. That's a win. That's our metric, not about whether you can succeed long-term. And so they're less optimized for these longer-term skills.
1: Yeah, very good point. And it's also a little more measurable, too. I think when you get into this soft skill <clears throat> realm, it's hard to measure quote unquote success. Although I think it's asymmetric. Um, you know what Rory Rory Sutherland was talking about in, in alchemy. He's like, when it works, it works at such a huge level that you want to try to reproduce it, but you never can because it's so asymmetric. Um, and I think that's with good management, good leadership, good negotiation, the the gains are so huge, but they're hard to measure. They're hard to measure. Um, it's, it's interesting. You, you know, we, we, we touched on this peer mentorship and, you know, building a group around you, which I always think is a great idea. That's the reason why we do, I do the podcast reason why I wrote the book as well. Um, but I, I did notice that you're working on an app for the book, which is sort of this, you know, everyone wants an app, <laughs> including you. <laughs> and so that's, kind of cool to try to, how to, how do you, how do you go about building it? And, 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 you know, it, cause you know, I know a lot of people that want to build apps. I know a lot of really smart engineers that could build an app in a weekend, but most of them are not successful. Uh, primarily because of product market fit, like you mentioned, go-to-market strategy, it, it's really in the end all about getting the word out. It, it's none of the technical, it could be the best technical app in the world. And if no one knows about it, it it's fa- a quote-unquote failure. How have you approached building your app for your book, given all you know about the, the undifferentiated, squishy <laughs> skills of, of, of
2: being, in a, being an entrepreneur? So I am the one person who probably doesn't want to have an app. <laughs> that was not my intention. All right. So you're like, you're ahead of the
1: game. All right, cool.
2: <laughs> I actually think far too many people say, oh, let's, let's build an app for this, then everything else. And oh, we don't need yet another app. Exactly, exactly. I was chatting with my neighbor about the book. This goes back probably about a year and a half. And she's, she has a marketing background. She said, oh, you should build an app to market your book. I said, OK, sure. What should the app do? I don't know, build an app. <laughs> I love it. Great, I love thanks. It. Right. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's the insight that really drives forward innovation. So I, I sat there and thought about it. Now, one thing I have been a big believer in is learning knowledge in lots of different disciplines. I'm trained in physics and engineering. I've worked as an engineer. I have read accounting books just to get better at understanding finance. I have learned a lot about marketing. I've learned a lot about HR. I just pick up these skills and knowledge because you never know where it's going to be useful. I've worked in digital media before. And so I started thinking about, okay, an app, what should the app do? Now, most book apps are just take the content, take the PDF and stick in an app. And that's not very interesting. But I've worked in digital media and I have worked in education. Now, we know in education, there's a well-known technique called spaced repetition. If you read the book once, you forget it. But if you go back, whether you look at it again right before the test say or you have flashcards, it reinforces it. Okay, this is well-known education. And I know when I read books like the one I wrote, I forget them three weeks later. Yeah, that was a great book, but it fades away. So how can we make this content more valuable? Then I also know with digital media, if you look at what's happening, people need to take digital content, take content in general, and blow it out from where it's been confined. If you think about the top books, let's think about Harry Potter. Okay, great books. Okay, it got turned into movies. Sure, many good books do. But it's also an online website. You can go to Pottermore. You can go buy the clothes and play dress up. You can play Quidditch. You can have all the toys that my nephews have. You can go to Universal Studios. It took the content that began between two covers and expanded it so people can access it when and where they want. And this is what is going to happen to more and more media. We're taking it out of that linear experience and putting it in a nonlinear way. So I took these ideas. Okay, I want the book. I want to get that spaced repetition. I want to make the content more accessible and said, oh, there should be an app where you get reminded of the content you read. Now, I didn't plan to build this. I thought, oh, someone must have done this. This is kind of obvious when you think about it. I'm just going to go license it, right? Go buy the app, stick my content in there. It did not exist. And this is where, thankfully, having my background as an engineer, I said, okay, well, I know how to build this. So I filed a patent on the approach to it and then went out, built the app. And so now what the app does, it sits in your pocket. Once a day, it's going to give you a notification. You select 9 a.m., 12.30, whenever it's good for you. And if you had took a highlighter to the book, a good quote, a good tip, a key point, it's going to pop that up to reinforce it. This helps build retention for the reader. And so that makes it more valuable for you. You can also take the app and open it up And this goes to, well, if you're about to walk into a negotiation, say, okay, what were all those tips? You're not going to carry my book with you, but you open the app and you say, let me just go through those tips again. It's taking the content and putting it where and when you, the user, want it. Now, from the author standpoint, we get an added benefit. If you are going to, we all like word of mouth marketing. Everyone loves that. Well, if you're going to be talking to people about a book, is it a book you read last year or is it a book that you were just reminded of yesterday when you got that pop up notification? Yeah, engagement. And so when I built this, I thought, you know, this is good not just for me, I'll bet other authors can use this, other teachers, instructors. And so that's why I not only patented it, but I created not just my app, but a white label version. So sometime later this year or next year, I'll launch it out for other people. And so this all stems from recognizing that there is a problem because I've had a diverse set of knowledge. I've looked in different areas and by putting it together, I saw an opportunity. I saw a problem that hadn't been addressed and was able to build a comprehensive solution for it.
1: Yeah. And that's really, that's really slick. I agree. I totally agree with you. I mean, I try to, I mean, I read a lot of books like the one I just finished was alchemy. That's how it's top of mind. And of course I'm interviewing you. So I'm going to need to obviously read your book. I haven't had a chance to read it all yet, but, um, I love uh, what I normally do is I'll take notes on stuff. Like I just, I'm a note. I don't, I hardly ever read the notes again, but what it does is it reinforces like you said. Um, but a, a place to like collect all of those snippets and Tidbits of knowledge that you could get reinforced. God, what a great idea! I'm I am shocked that no one's ever tried to do that. So good on you. Um, so what would be the one thing that you would tell like a younger entrepreneur that's coming up? Like the one thing that they should focus on or do, or like the skill? Like I know. I mean, you've got a. I'm sure you've got dozens of them, but. What do you think is the one thing that you'd want to tell someone new coming up in in entrepreneurship?
2: You're going to be focused very much on your functional area, right? As a founder, maybe you're a salesperson, an engineer, finance, whatever your area is, and you'll have co-founders in other functional areas. You're going to focus on that as well as your core solution space, right? Whatever your industry is, you want to understand it really well. But invest some time into these other skills. So let me give you a a simple example. I'll give the example of a uh, salaried employee, but we can look at this for an entrepreneur as well. So don't tune out if you're an entrepreneur already. Imagine that you are getting your first job out of school and they offer you $60,000. Say, okay, well I learned a little about negotiation, so I'm gonna negotiate and you get 61,000 instead. Right that's a very small negotiation. We can all imagine that being doable. If you do nothing else, if you sit in this job for the next 40 years, you just got $1000 more for 40 years. One tiny 5-minute negotiations and you just earned $40,000. That is huge. That's an amazing ROI. Now of course we know that's not realistic. You're not going to hold one job for 40 years. You will have raises, promotions, you'll take other jobs. And so learning to negotiate a little bit better, this is going to add literally six figures to your income. But of course, this is just salary negotiations. We know negotiations being good at will actually help you work not just with customers and suppliers. And if you're an entrepreneur, you can imagine doing this each of your sales, each of your agreements with the supplier, each sale to a customer. If you could do just you know, half a percent better, think of what that will do at your bottom line. But of course, as you interact, even with teammates, we negotiate all the time with our coworkers. Imagine if everyone in the company was just half a percent, 1% better at negotiating, what would that do to your bottom line? And so when you look at these skills, it's not about being a world-class leader, the greatest negotiator, the best communicator. But if you just get marginally better, literally a couple percent better, it is going to have this massive cumulative return throughout your career. And if you can get this in your organization, if you can get everyone in your company to be that 1% better at communicating, 1% better at leading, it's going to have a huge effect on the overall operations and efficiency of your company. So invest a little bit of time into these other skills as you focus on your core competency and your industry.
1: Wow. Well, thanks for that, Mark. Uh, I think that's a perfect place to end. I really appreciate your time. I am looking forward to your book, The Career Toolkit. I'm definitely, as an author, going to check your app out. So let me know when you've released it to a white label, um, because I know a lot of other authors that that would be cool as well. So thanks again. Stay safe and uh, keep in touch.
2: And you can find all of this on the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. Thanks, Mark, for a great interview. I really
1: appreciate your time and all of your awesome insights. So, as promised, here are some actionable insights I learned from Mark. You'll probably want to check out Mark's book and website uh, to get a full feeling of what he knows how to do. But if you want to get started, here are a few takeaways that I came away with. Start shifting your mindset by learning more about soft skills. If everyone improved in these areas just a little bit, the cumulative impact would be huge. If you're looking to become a manager or are a manager, think of yourself as the person who supports the people during doing the work, right? Mark sees the traditional pyramid as inverted, where managers are the support structure, lifting up the contributors of the people actually doing the work. The best way... To learn these skills is through peer groups. Form a group to share experiences and brainstorm in order to get exposed to the wide range of possibilities. Since there is really no one right answer, quote unquote, to these types of problems that managers encounter, the more you learn from others, the better off you'll be. And I think this peer mentorship idea is pretty powerful. I mean, that's one of the reasons, you know, I belong to Founders Network, which I've had a bunch of the other members of Founders Network on my podcast as well. So there you go. Some actionable insights to get started, but please do check out Mark's book. It is pretty darn awesome. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter, at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions, or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.